Galatians is where we're at. This is part eight. Law, liberty, and life in Jesus. The title I'm giving to this teaching, and I want to just take a minute to explain it before we jump in. Do we live in God's grace the same way we started in God's grace? Or is it different? Do we live in God's grace the same way we started in God's grace? Or is it different? And here's the introduction I wanted to give. There are certain, there are certain types of truth that as soon as you hear them, you receive immediate benefit from them. For example, if you came into this church this morning, just pretend, and you're from some foreign country, you've never driven a car, and you've got, but you made it to church this morning, and you're going to be driving home. And I say to you, it's very important to remember that in Canada, you drive on the right side of the road, not the left. And if you didn't know that before, you will start applying that truth immediately as soon as you start driving home. In other words, you will see the benefit of that truth in about 40 minutes from now. You'll see the benefit of that truth. There are other things you learn that are equally important, but you don't immediately see the application of them in the same way. Kids go to school. Why do I have to study this? Why do I have to study that? I'm not going to be a mathematician. I'm not going to be a physicist. Why do I have to study these subjects? And you don't see the immediate benefit of it. But they might be even more important things. This topic this morning is, is one of those topics... It's not going to change the way you go home from church today. You might not think there's immediate application of it to your life, but there is great importance to it in that it keeps you from thinking wrong things about God, and there's nothing more important than that. Because we live in a world where people have all sorts of belief systems. They put their faith in all sorts of belief systems, all sorts of religions. And all of them think their religion is true. And I suppose there might be some benefits to society in almost all of them. How does that relate to how we view the Christian faith? How do we know this is important in a way no other religion on earth is? That's the kind of truth we're going to be studying this morning. Galatians 3, 1 to 5. Let me read. Follow along. And if you're at home, get your Bible out. Paul writes, You foolish Galatians. <clears throat> it's not a great way to start, is it, with people? Who has cast the spell on you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. That's an interesting word publicly portrayed as crucified. It's like, it's like someone does a portrait and just sets it in front of you to be studied, looked at. Portrayed as crucified. Not just crucified, portrayed as crucified. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit 
by the works of the law or by believing what you heard. So did you receive? This is the start of their Christian walk. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? And it's a rhetorical question. He expects a certain answer from that. Three, are you so foolish? That's the second time he's hinted that they're fools. After beginning, notice the contrast. After beginning, so you got saved in the Christian, after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing? That's the rest of your Christian life. That's where we are, right? Most of us right now. After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If in fact it was for nothing. So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you? Cessationists often say after the Gospels, you don't have many miracles anymore. And, and, you know, Paul says to this later on, this church in Galatia, working miracles among you, by works of the law, or is it by believing what you have heard? Let's just pray. It's an involved text, Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to quicken our minds and hearts. This is truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the divine mind felt was important for us to know, and it's recorded in Scripture. And so take the words and let them start to live in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage marks a bit of a, a transition. If you've been following along with us, this is the first time, really, that Paul speaks directly to the Galatians themselves since 113. Up to this point, what we really have are Paul's words to Peter. Remember Peter's mistake. I won't go over all that again. Peter in Antioch and, and uh, Barnabas in Antioch and their mistake. And Paul has been addressing Peter directly until this point where he starts to talk to the, the church. The importance of this present passage for us lies in the fact that Paul, Paul in this passage starts to turn his attention away from the beginning of the Christian life by faith alone. That's what he's been talking about. Now he's going to start talking about continuing the Christian life, finishing the Christian life, or being perfected in the Christian life. So none of us can sit back apparently and say, well, I am a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ, so this text has nothing to do with me. I've not made the mistake that Peter made. Uh, I know a person is saved through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. And that's good. That's good to know that. But Paul's point in the text goes quite a bit deeper. Not only, not only is one saved by faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, but one also continues and finishes his or her Christian life in the very same way it was started. This is going to be the thrust of Paul's argument in today's text. Paul is going to show these Galatians, a, a group, a cluster really of churches, that their error is foolish, verse 1, 
And he's going to show that it's foolish on two levels. So that's where we're going to go. Point number one. Paul tells these Christians that if they regress, in their case, into Judaism, but you can put any religion you want, if they regress into Judaism, they abandon the significance of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his crucifixion. It's in Galatians 3.1 where he says, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes... This is interesting. I mentioned it before. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So to turn back to putting trust in any religious system that leaves Jesus Christ out of the picture, okay? And there's lots of them in the world today. To turn to any religion of human works, he says it's, it's an act of spiritual treason. And he wants these Galatian Christians to know that. Notice that wonderful expression. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So, so this, was the, this was the focal point of everything Paul was teaching these Christians. He didn't just preach about Jesus Christ. He didn't just tell them that Jesus lived a beautiful life. He didn't just tell them Jesus was a great moral example. He didn't just tell them Jesus said wonderful things in the Sermon on the Mount or that Jesus was a crusader of social justice. He doesn't point out any of those things. He says, when I talked about Jesus, I, I set him up. I portrayed him as crucified. It's his death that I talked to you about, Paul says. Not his teaching, not his miracles, his death. So Paul placed Jesus, that's the Jewish Messiah, he put Jesus before them as crucified. And, and apparently this, to Paul, that was the end of the law, it was the end of the old covenant, it's the end of any other religious quest portrayed as crucified. Paul means he, Paul means he worked hard to make people see the link between the death of Jesus and their Christian life. That there was no Christian life apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he wanted them to be participants in the cross. So first of all, these Galatian Christians are foolish because their regression into the old covenant of Judaism, it's a denial of the whole meaning of Christ. The whole reason Jesus came. The whole reason that he died. They were, they were, unintentionally, they probably thought they were supplementing the gospel with the law. But they were denying the message of the cross whenever they turned to other religious efforts and other religious systems. Well, Pastor Don, what do you mean, denying Jesus? How, how, how could they possibly be denying Jesus? Jesus Christ. I mean, that seems a little, a little harsh. Here's how their actions. Going back to the old covenant, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the table laws, the dietary laws, the, the, the separation from the Gentile. You need to keep all that alive. How do those actions deny the cross? Well, 
Only the cross of Christ shows how utterly hopeless my spiritual condition is on my own. The, the death of Jesus on the cross on my behalf shows the lengths to which Father God must go, sending the Son, the length to which God must go, not to educate Don Horbin, but to redeem Don Horbin. I still remember, I, I know this is going back in time, but I can remember years ago seeing uh, Larry King live when that was still on the air. And there was John MacArthur, and there was a rabbi, and there was a Muslim cleric. And a lot of the conversation, the way Larry was trying to steer it, of course, was the similarities between these three great monotheistic faiths on planet Earth. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But you could feel the tension starting in the conversation. I, I don't mean you could feel the tension when Jesus was discussed. And I don't mean any of them denied the teaching of Jesus, except what he said about himself. But they didn't deny the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus. But once the subject of the incarnation, God in the flesh, and the atonement, God the Son on the cross, once that came up, both the cleric and the rabbi were just visibly angered at the very idea of God the Son dying on the cross for our sins to redeem us. And of course, that's, that's what your whole New Testament says would happen. A stumbling block to so many religions and so many very moral, upright, religious people. The, the first thing the cross reveals about me is my utter inability to save myself. Keeping any laws, any regulations, any spiritual disciplines won't get me there. I mean, if Jesus was a prophet, well then, I follow his teaching. My pride is still intact. But if he's my redeemer, well, then I need rescuing. Then I've got a deeper problem than ignorance. If there's a redeemer, my problem isn't just ignorance. It's, it's rebellion. Nothing reveals the depths of my sin and my helplessness before God like the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul always talks about the offense of the cross. He argues and says, you can tell I'm still preaching the cross. Everybody hates me. He says that. If dietary laws or circumcision or any other regulation or any other religion or all of them put together could make me right with God, Paul says then Christ died for nothing. Don't take my word for it. It's right there. I do, not, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then here it is. Christ died for what? Nothing. Useless. Useless. So by putting their faith in their own ability to keep the law, these Galatians, that's the situation Paul's writing, the cultural situation, these Galatians were in danger, unless they repented, they were in danger of actually 
setting aside. Wow. The grace of God. That's the first way they're being foolish. But there's another way, point number two. The Galatians are foolish because to regress back into Judaism, it's to deny the reality of their own experience of God's Spirit in their lives. I get that in Galatians 3.2. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? So, Here's where we've been. To abandon salvation by grace through faith, it denies the cross, the reality of the cross. That's the first point. But it does something else. It denies the work of God's Spirit in their own experience, in their own hearts. So on on both accounts, any religion to this day that turns away from the cross of Christ for salvation misses the target. Misses the target. It sets aside God's redeeming work. The question Paul asks here is, is really significant, isn't it? He doesn't, he doesn't ask, what did you hear or what did you learn from me? doesn't ask that. Or, who baptized you? Or with what words or what formula. It's not a religious question in that sense at all. The question is about their experience. What did you experience of the Holy Spirit? How did you receive the life of the Spirit in your heart? That's the question. Did you receive the Spirit? He assumes, when he asks that question, does he not assume there's something recognizable that He assumes they can answer that question. In other words, Paul assumes these Galatian Christians, or these Christians at Cedarview Community Church, Paul assumes they recognize the Holy Spirit came into their life. That they didn't just sign on to church membership, or repeat some words, or go through a ritual in a baptismal tank with Pastor Chris. It wasn't that. It was the Spirit came into them. They knew it. They knew it. Something, Paul assumes, something beyond an intellectual deduction took place when they got saved. Something outside of a, a, a religious ritual or a tradition. Something bigger than their upbringing in a Christian home. No, no. Something in addition to all of that, the Spirit came in. And he's asking about that experience. I know that this won't interest everybody, but there are like seminary students and others. Very few commentaries reach the level of scholarly acceptance among conservatives and liberals. I'm talking theological conservatives and liberals. Very few are as respected as James Dunn's famous work on Galatians. And I want you to listen. I'm going to read. Listen to the way he, a non-Pentecostal, writer. Listen to the way he explains Paul's words on Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Here's what Dunn says. This cannot be understood in any other than ex- 
experiential terms. Not as though receiving the Spirit was a matter of purely rational conviction or simply a deduction to be drawn from the fact that they had been baptized. No. The appeal is clearly to an event which Paul could clearly expect them vividly to remember. The coming of the Spirit was evidently something which made an impact on the lives of those who received it. An impact at an emotional as well as a rational level. So, Paul intends to remind these Galatian believers, there's simply no denying the work of God's Spirit in the transformation of those committed to Jesus Christ. That's the important point of verse 2. People must experience the power of God's Spirit in their lives. And the power of the Spirit isn't merely an intellectual event, not just agreeing with certain doctrines. It's not just something to be thought about or even agreed with. There's this recognizable experience. God's Holy Spirit begins His transforming work in the depth of the soul. Now that, it's all fairly theological. Here's why it's important. Most of those who had been converted under Paul's ministry in that whole Galatia area, not far from modern Greece, most of those who had been converted under Paul's ministry were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. Pastor Don, who cares? Well, here's why it matters a bit. These Gentiles had never even tried to keep the laws of ethnic Judaism. They wouldn't even know the regulations. They would have no knowledge of them. Yet, Paul says they had this powerful experience of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's Paul's argument. How are you going to explain this life-changing experience of the Holy Spirit in these Gentiles who knew nothing about the law that these Jews were saying was so essential? Or in Paul's words, 3-2, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by believing what you heard. And clearly, these Gentiles didn't, didn't receive the Spirit from the works of the law. They didn't even know about the works of the law. Paul starts to wrap up his argument. Point number three. The abiding role of faith and the ongoing dynamic of the Spirit in those who believe. Look at 3, 4, and 5, okay, of Galatians 3. We're almost done. Are you so foolish? After, after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? And I want to talk, those two words I want to talk about. Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your own doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you have heard? Notice how each of these verses, it takes us a bit further into the present walk with Jesus. Notice how Paul moves from arguments about seeing Christ crucified, verse 1, 
experiencing the power of the Spirit of God, verse 2. Now to how one is going to be perfected. How he's going to progress in the Christian walk. Verse 3. Are you now finishing? I have a book that I was reading. And every once in a while, somebody says something that you always knew, but they say it in such a way that suddenly you think, wow. And it hits you. It's a little book on sanctification. I'm not recommending it to anybody. It's a textbooky thing. Most of you are going to pick this up and go, what in the world is Pastor Don reading? But there are certain sentences on this. He's writing about the ongoing need of grace, not just for salvation, but how you and I, how we all move ahead in the Christian life now that we've started it, or finishing the way Paul talks about it. And all I did was I highlighted certain sentences in orange that jumped out at me and I wanted just to read them to you. How much do we need divine grace to finish our Christian life, not just start it? How much do we need that? When we sing, Jesus, I need you, we sang it this morning, right? What, what kind of understanding do you bring to that song? Because if you're not careful, here's what will happen. Jesus, I need you every moment. I need you. Um, and, and Jesus kind of, I need Jesus because I get, I get down. I get burdened with difficulties. And Jesus, is a, he's a buddy. He, he's my friend. And he comes and he cheers my heart. And he lifts me up and he carries me and and helps me through the struggles of life. And none of that's untrue. I simply want to say to you, none of those things is the real reason you and I need Jesus. Not as a psychological help to cope. There's something else we need from Jesus every moment, every hour. We have not a single work going forth from the saints, that if it be judged in itself, deserves not shame as its just reward. There is no stage in life of the sanctified believer that the forgiveness of sins is not absolutely central to their relationship with God. Let me read that again. There is no stage in the life of the sanctified believer no stage, that the forgiveness of sins is not absolutely central to their relationship with God. Grace is not given like an antibiotic given to a sick patient to ward off the infection of sin and enabling them to take on a less sinful posture. Here's the reason, Jesus, I need you. Every moment I need you. The reason is, I, to this day, I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. I'm 85. So you think of all those years. Think of all those years. And every day, today, today as I sat here and I sang those songs, and I thank Jesus, here's what was going through my mind. I have, to this day, 
pastor of CW Community Church, I have no access to God without Jesus. And you don't. You can't get there because, well, I did my devotions every day this week. I gave money to a, a, a needy person. I helped them this week. That's what that verse means. There's not a single work going forth from the saints that if judged by itself, deserve not shame as its just reward. Everything I do is tinged with Don Horbin. And the forgiveness I need from Jesus today is just as big as the forgiveness I needed when I was seven years old and I asked Jesus to save me and it was all of grace. I didn't deserve it. And he keeps saving me. Every day I have access to the Father and I need Jesus for that access. That's the point Paul is trying to make in that text. He has great compassion for these Galatian Christians. It isn't just some cold theological idea. It's a loving, practical concern. He wants them, he wants me, he wants us to understand theirs is not merely some kind of mistake that doesn't make much difference anyway. He wants them to see that they're coming very, in this, in this reversion to Judaism, they're coming very close to an approach to Christian living that won't work, that can't work. Think about that third verse really carefully. It's written to people. It's not written to people yet to start the Christian life. It's written to people who began some time ago. After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? It's written to people who are now veering off course. And Paul's point is, is, is plain. What was begun in the power of the Spirit cannot be completed with my, my best efforts to be a good person. Won't work. What does Paul mean by this phrase, the flesh? Let me, let me clean this up. I'm going to try. What does, what does Paul mean by this? After beginning in the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Well, we know some things about the flesh. Here's some of the stuff we know about the flesh, okay? The works of, here it is, same word. Works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. It's not an exhaustive list. Stuff like that. I'm warning you about these things. Nobody says this anymore, but the New Testament still does. Those who practice, it's, it's habitual. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, in, in, in today's church, just about everybody gets into the kingdom of God. But Paul says, no, if, if these works of the flesh, if, if this is the dominant nature of your life, it's bad news. But here's what I want to say. That's not the only way the flesh is talked about in the New Testament, and it's not the way Paul is using it in Galatians. Here's something closer. Look at this text. Philippians 3, 4-7. 
Although I have reasons for, and here's the same subject, confidence in the flesh. That confidence word is important. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is, now, Paul's addressing the kind of, the kind of confidence in the flesh that these Galatians were manifesting. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He wasn't, he wasn't lousy at this. He was perfect at it. That's his religious practice outside of Christ. It was flawless. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. Now, here's the important point. What Paul is talking about there in Philippians, it's the same flesh that he's talking about in Galatians 5, that list. In Galatians 5, he's talking about the way the flesh manifests itself secularly. In Philippians 3, he's talking about the way the flesh manifests itself religiously. But it's the same flesh manifesting itself in both cases. How can that be the same, Pastor John? I don't see any similarity in those two passages at all. Here's what's the same. Exactly the same in both the uses of the flesh in those passages. In both cases, self sets its own agenda. The first picture, Galatians 5, is the flesh trying to find fulfillment on its own terms. The second picture, Philippians 3, is the flesh trying to please God on its own terms. But it's the same flesh in both cases. Only it doesn't feel wicked in the second case. I'm just, you know, it's very hard for us. You see people, nice people. You like these people. They're good people. But they're involved in this religion or that religion or that religion. And we don't recognize, we don't recognize any rejection of Christ. We don't see that manifestation of the flesh in the same way we see it in, in sorcery and, and wickedness and immorality. But it's, it's the same flesh, which is, which is why only in the cross of Jesus Christ is there an answer to the dilemma of Don Horbin's deepest need? It involves that kind of humble surrender to God's terms. And at any point where I don't surrender to God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, and at any point where I turn to something else, that's the flesh and that's what needs saving. So I said at the beginning, it's one of those truths that churches don't come back to maybe as often as they need to. It's not like learning to drive on the right side of the road. I don't expect you to be thinking about this all the while you're having lunch, though you should think of it a bit. You've, many of you, you have, you have children, and, and they, are, they are being indoctrinated to view any faith system as equally valid. They are. And somewhere along the way, if they're gonna if they're going to if they're gonna follow Jesus, 
someone's going to have to say, you can't go down that road. You can't go down that road. Or they'll be lost. So Paul says to the church at Ephesus and to the church on 1000 Gorham Street, stay true to the gospel. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Don't settle for a dead religious formalism. Don't look for salvation in any other source. Don't try and live the Christian life on your own momentum. Pray that the Holy Spirit keeps all of our hearts devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that's countercultural. This kind of bleeds into my heart. Does anybody else sense the importance of that? Stuff, the most precious stuff slips away unless you hold on to it very diligently. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your word. We, we, we don't want to be foolish. Paul uses that word twice. The Holy Spirit uses Paul to use that word twice. And so, let your Holy Spirit keep your word growing in our hearts. The impact of it. The effect of it. Let it continue to live in our hearts. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.